0: He received no food at all for four and a half days and even once they started giving them food again, it was only a little bit of bread and soup and cabbage, which sounds neither appealing nor good for the constitution. And welcome to another episode of For You, The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, Prison of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave.
1: And me, Tony. And in this episode, we have an escaper by the name of André de Granger, who was a member of the Fighting French Navy. Now, Dave, when you sent me this report over, I had a look at it, and I looked at the capture date. So 13th of September 1942, caught in Normandy. And I couldn't think why there'd be a member of the Fighting French Navy captured in Normandy on that particular date. Now, we're obviously familiar with Dieppe of August 1942, but Mm -hmm. I wasn't really aware of much else going on on the French coast. So this has been quite a learning exercise for me. So I went to have a look to see if I could find the background of this. And the background is this: that de Gonja was part of Operation Aquatint. Not one I'd heard of. Nor me. But then we've had a couple in the last series that we hadn't really heard of. And this was an operation by the 62nd Commando Unit, undertaken over the night of the 12th and 13th of September. It is known in many circles as being an utter disaster, and we'll see why very shortly. But I wanted to see why these kind of operations were going on. So I had a look back... So, 62 Commando had formed something called the Small-Scale Raiding Force, which was an idea thought up by the Chief of Combined Operations, Admiral Louis Mountbatten. The idea being to probe German coastal defences. Now, we covered in Series 3, Episode 3, Lieutenant Commander Redvers Pryor, Mm-hmm. who was caught at Dieppe, and everybody has heard of Dieppe. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't realise is there were actually four operations that were carried out all within a two-month period, all with the same purposes of right, okay. looking at German coastal defences. It's described that three of these four were, were actually successful. I can't find that they were particularly. I mean, two were. For sure. So the first one was Operation Barricade, which was conducted on the 14th and 15th of August. And that was to infiltrate a coastal anti-aircraft battery, immobilise it, and then bring back captured person to interrogate in the UK. So it was all carried out by small groups of commandos on motor torpedo boats infiltrating the coastal defences at night. That was deemed successful because they did actually manage to capture somebody and there were no losses to any of the commandos. The second operation was Operation Jubilee, which was the DF. We won't go into it here because it's a rather long thing. So we'll leave that one there. Anybody who is interested, We do cover it in depth in Series 3 on Episode 3, so have a little look there. Then there was Operation Dryad, which was on the 2nd and 3rd of September, which was in the Channel Islands. Now, that was also deemed to be successful, and that was to basically go and capture a lighthouse and defensive position on the Channel Islands and raid it for intelligence. Now, allegedly, they did this without firing a single shot and also managed to come back with a captured German. So I can see where they were thinking that this was going and that this was a good idea. Now there was another operation, Operation Pound, on the 7th and 8th of September I can't actually find any records of how that went. Okay. There are reports that it was successful. I don't know where it was carried out or what happened, but I do know that one of those individuals who was on that raid was injured because he is also in Operation Aquitint, but has to look after their collapsible boats that transferred them from the motor torpedo boat to the beach. So he still went in injured from his previous raid of the the previous week. So that really takes us into Aquitint. Now, Aquitint was a reconnaissance mission to a small coastal town just outside Port-en-Bessin in Normandy. It's known to those who love their D-Day as what became Omaha Beach. Right, okay. So the beach that these guys were landing in later became Omaha Beach. Whether it was a result of this reconnaissance or... I don't think so, as we'll see from the results of this raid. So the aim of Aquatint was to capture information about the area immediately surrounding the beach and ideally capture a German guard. Now, Voter Reconnaissance had identified a couple of small houses on this particular beach that they thought were being used by a small number of Germans, and that it was quiet enough that they'd be able to get in, capture someone, do a reconnaissance locally on the ground, and get back out again. It didn't go well from the day before, because originally... The mission was supposed to be on the night of the 11th now they left Portsmouth to try and identify the beach but there was thick fog the weather was not great they had to negotiate the minefield getting in and they couldn't identify the spot so they came back to Portsmouth again to try again on the next night on the 12th so we start off with effectively 11 commandos there were four people that interested me in this particular commando raid one was Private Jan Hollings who was originally called Helling and came from Holland. There was Private Adam Orr, who was Polish. But there was also Richard Leonard, who when I looked him up is actually Richard Langer, who was a German Jew who was part of the raiding force. Then, of course, there's de Granger, who's part of the Fighting French. So I can see them taking people who could speak Mm -hmm. (laughs) the languages and everything else. But it's interesting that four of the 11 men are foreign nationals. Mm. So they leave on a motor torpedo boat from Portsmouth, and they leave at about 8 o'clock on the night of the 12th. They actually get over by 10 o'clock, but they've got to negotiate the minefield that's off the coast. So it takes them until midnight to negotiate this minefield, and then they incorrectly identify their landing ground by a mile which is pretty considerable when they're trying to target one specific area. So they end up having to take to a collapsible boat from the motor torpedo boat that stays off the shore. And then they row in and they get in and they find that actually they're beach area that they have is too close to the houses it's easy to spot the collapsible boat so they have to then drag the collapsible boat 200 yards to the east to try and hide it away from the Germans now they need to know that they've not been rumbled by the fact that they've arrived so a small party these men have to go off to see whether or not the Germans have noticed whether they've arrived or not now we're very close to Dieppe here the Germans were particularly high on their guard for raiding parties. So, actually, there was a large number of German patrols out that night. And this is where the raid started to go wrong. So, they encountered a patrol of about seven or eight Germans. And they tried to hide from these Germans. But the Germans had a dog. And the dog noticed the landing men. So, a fight started on the beach. And this is a fight with machine guns and grenades on an open beach. It's never going to end well. And it's a bloodbath. It's a total bloodbath. So some of the men try to make it back to the collapsible boat. Okay, So the man who had been injured was Captain Geoffrey Appleyard. He had been left with the collapsible boat to try and make sure it didn't drift away, didn't get caught with the tide and everything else. He's wounded again looking after the collapsible boat. But people managed to help him to get back into the boat. And a small number of these men make it back into the collapsible to then start to try and row back out to get to the motor torpedo boat effectively leaving anybody else who was injured or killed already on the beach. The problem is now with the firefight, it's loaded the machine gun posts. So the machine gun posts then start to open up and puncture the collapsible boat. So they get about 100 yards off the shore, they can't find the motor torpedo boat and now they're taking machine gun fire The boat starts to sink. They now have to try and swim to the motor torpedo boat, which itself takes fire and has to withdraw back into the minefield, leaving the only option for those that are in the water to have to then swim back to shore to where the Germans are waiting for them. So it becomes an utter bloodbath. Out of that, four people do actually manage to escape. So we're down on men a lot here. Mm-hmm. Um, three had been killed in the initial firefight. Four ended up being captured and four ended up escaping. Now, the motor torpedo boat did actually come back in about an hour and a half later. It was picked up by searchlights from the shore. It had to withdraw again, so it didn't pick up any survivors. And it ended up having to go back to Portsmouth, where it got back at about sort of 10 o'clock the next day. Not successful. So the interesting thing with this is that you know, you've got a number of commandos that have been killed on the beach. You've got a number that are captured most of whom are wounded, as we see from de Granger's report. Of the four that escaped, three are later captured. The fates of these men are all rather tragic, even some of the ones that were captured and then became prisoners of war, but we'll cover that a bit later. So I think going to de Granger's report, so he says, I was captured by German soldiers on, on the morning of the 13th of September 1942. A number of my companions were killed and I sustained a bayonet wound in my left calf. So bayonets would suggest fairly close Mm. hand-to-hand fighting. It's interesting that actually some of these raids did continue beyond this raid, but Mm. they were deemed to be acceptable losses. But, I mean, in this particular instance, most of the higher command of this particular raid were killed as part of the firefight. And to me, it seems a... Unnecessary waste of commando life for relatively limited information that would come back.
0: Yeah, as you say, not a successful operation. No. And particularly from the perspective of de Grange. Correct. Who, of course, was captured, as he said. So upon being captured, he was searched and he says, my purse and escape aid's box were taken from me. The purse would have been local currency, francs, but also potentially rex marks and possibly even Dutch or belgian currency as well and of course the escape aid box would contain usual escape aids such as compasses maps basic food provisions, sometimes benzodrine tablets, or energy tablets as they describe them, yep. boiled sweets sometimes, and also some thread. Although he does say that they were taken from him, it is interesting to see almost immediately the, the mention and the reference to them, but it's also interesting to see that the Germans immediately went for them as well, so they're clearly aware that these provisions are provided and potentially they're even aware f- from captured airmen, who would have had them, and would have had far greater presence on the continent than soldiers and naval seamen yeah. in 1940. there would have been a far greater concentration and presence on the continent of downed airmen. And having been searched, he was then taken immediately to the guard room and then taken by truck to Cannes nearby. Now he says, on the f- morning of the 14th of September, I was examined by the Gestapo, which is not a great start. But it's also not particularly common for recently captured prisoners of war to be no. immediately interrogated by the Gestapo. But I think the context of the missions and operations that you have
1: just described... Yeah, a nighttime commando raid when there's been a number going on in various different areas, it would have surely flagged up with the higher German authorities... Now,
0: what is interesting is he says immediately my sleeves and tunic were ripped open and my captors seemed anxious to find concealed identity cards and maps on my person, of which I had none. That's fine that he didn't have any maps or concealed identity cards, but it's very interesting that that's immediately what the Gestapo went for, which again suggests that they have previous knowledge of how these provisions were hidden on the person of a serviceman. Yes. After a couple of days of interrogation by the Gestapo, a couple of days later, he was taken to... To Rouen where he was further interrogated by the Gestapo. Now he says he can speak no German and very little English which I imagine would have made the interrogation quite difficult on all sides. Yeah. Not that the Gestapo were famed for making their interrogations particularly easy. No. And the, the range of questions that he was asked is quite extensive and insightful as to what the Gestapo were looking for. You know he says I was asked what port I'd sailed from, what was the nature of my mission and whether I carried false identity cards again. I was asked a number of questions about troop numbers in Britain, Britain, especially American and free French troops, nature of equipment, German air raids affecting British morale and even where British railways were being guarded. And he was also asked why he was serving with British forces, which I would have thought was perfectly obvious, but I suppose Gestapo weren't famed for their subtlety of mind either. Correct, yes.
1: And we assume he answered nothing to all of these questions. Well yes,
0: he, he says I either did not reply to these questions or said I did not know the answers. He was then asked for his address in both the UK and in France But he only replied that his address was that of French combatants in London, which actually his report provides more detail of because he says that his address is care of fighting French Naval HQ, Westminster House, 2 Dean Stanley Street, London, SW1.
1: Nice. And it's obvious he's not going to give away any French advice because it could have repercussions for his any family that's left in France.
0: Well, exactly, yes. So having survived interrogation by the Gestapo for a couple of days, his wound was then dressed and after about three weeks he was taken to Wilhelmshaven by train. Arriving there on the 20th of October 1942, so that's just over a month since the raid. Yeah. About five weeks later, and he was taken to a building formerly a school, which interesting was just beside the arsenal on the outskirts of the town. Now I say that's interesting because, of course, Wilhelmshaven is a harbour. Yes and therefore any intelligence-like locations of camps but also locations of arsenal would have been very useful information because of course this is an mi9 report yeah so this is the sort of intelligence military intelligence that was filtering back through from these escaped prisoners of war back into the overall intelligence network absolutely that was operating in the uk now what i found interesting about this was i wasn't aware of a prisoner of war camp in Wilhelmshaven. And initially i wondered because of course it is a port it is a harbor i wondered if this was attached or really Related to the Milag and Marlag naval camp, but it doesn't seem to be. No, then we
1: have seen we have seen in other episodes where French workers or French captives have been used in effectively labour aspects of helping the Third Reich around ports. I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen so many times prisoners of war turn up and then end up encamped in a French camp near a port. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I get it that not necessarily a prisoner of war camp, but was he maybe being selected more for some sort of working task? to become of use to the Germans in this instance?
0: Well, potentially. The only camp I could actually find any reference to in Wilhelmshaven was actually a satellite camp of a concentration camp. But that didn't actually appear until 1944. Ah, And we're in 1942 just now. So I can't immediately make the link there... But even if it wasn't a satellite camp to a concentration camp, that sort of level of security would fit more in with the Gestapo, the operation, the mission that he was working on than necessarily a working camp, which doesn't seem to be his direction of travel at this stage. I get you. And indeed, he goes on to say that on the third day of being in this camp, he was chained by his hands and feet and kept like that for 14 days. Now, we have kind of come across that before. Hmm. And from memory, that is a retaliation to the Dieppe raid. Yes, I think you're right. Where Germans who were captured by the Canadians raiding at Dieppe were found to be bound Mm. and therefore this was a retaliation and a number of prisoners of war were actually forced into this for several months at a time. Mm. And the timing of that would make sense given that the raid he was captured on was part of the overall Dieppe raiding series, if you like. But also, of course, in October 1942, we're talking about only two or three months after Dieppe, so the timing would make sense for him to have been bound and chained by his hands and feet in line with what other prisoners of war did experience at this time. And his treatment in general seems to have been fairly brutal. he received no food at all for four and a half days and even once they started giving them food again it was only a little bit of bread and soup and cabbage which sounds neither appealing nor good for the constitution. And of course he was kept in solitary stating that my only opportunity of seeing any other prisoners here was while going to the lavatory and on one occasion during an air raid I saw no other Frenchman that had no opportunity of speaking with the prisoners whom I did see. So they're keeping them under very... Close guard. Close guard. So after about a month of being kept either in solitary or under very close guard with very little food. He was eventually moved to a medium-sized room on the second floor at this camp, which was about 18 or 20 feet above the ground, which... Seems like a bit of a random detail, but actually it's very relevant to this escape. Now, about the middle of November, his chains were removed and he was told that because he had not given satisfactory answers at his interrogations, he would probably be shot. Which does give reasonable justification as to why he was quite motivated to escape. It does, yes. He doesn't seem to have been treated like a normal prisoner of war. He was captured in uniform. That usually means that you're taken prisoner of war and treated as a prisoner of war, but of course he's gone straight to the Gestapo, which was not normal practice he was bound and chained he was given no food for several days and even once he was given food it was very limited and was kept under close restraint now that is not normal practice for a prisoner of war as we know typically they went into a holding camp or a transit camp and then went into the overall prisoner of war camp system Mm -hmm. so while ordinarily when i kind of hear threats of being shot for prisoners of war i take it a little bit with a pinch of salt now it did happen on occasion course famously with the great escape but also occasionally when they were escaping itself and didn't heed the warnings but typically you were not lined up against the wall and shot for being a prisoner of war particularly not before you've even been put in a camp so this is Out of the ordinary treatment for a prisoner of war.
1: Yes, you're right in that instance. Although I haven't covered particularly the fates of the other people on the on the raid, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, four had been captured, four had escaped. Well, actually, three of those who escaped were later recaptured. Two that we mentioned previously, so Jan Hollings, uh, our Dutchman, and Adam Or, our Polish gentleman, they were later captured. There are no records what happened to them. There's no records of them becoming prisoners of war only that they were recaptured so I think we can draw our own conclusions yes yeah
0: and it's not lost to me that both were from occupied countries correct
1: now the other interesting one was Captain Graham Hayes, so Graham Hayes was one of those that was captured, not along with Durandja, but he was one who had escaped initially on that night, but was then later recaptured a couple of days later. Captain Hayes he had been unable to reach the motor torpedo boat on that night when they were trying to get back in the collapsible, and he started swimming swim away from the shooting, but he came ashore and managed to evade capture and eventually made contact with a local French family who provided him with some civilian clothing and, and contact the French resistance. He was taken by train after several weeks and reached Paris and then he was moved along the escape lines to the Spanish border arriving in October 1942 and he actually crossed into Spain but was stopped by Spanish border guards who then handed him over to the Germans so this is how he got caught later mm. on So he was returned to Paris, where he was imprisoned, and he was kept in solitary confinement for nine months before being executed by firing squad in July 1943. Now, he is a prisoner of war, as far as we're concerned, and he had landed in uniform and should therefore have been considered a prisoner of war. But he was executed following the issue of the commando order, which called for the execution of all commandos upon capture. I think you've looked into this a little bit before because we covered this a little bit with Dean Drummond. Yeah, the first we... escape. Yeah, so there was a period of time where commandos were treated as prisoners of war, but then that changed. Mm-hmm. So even if they were in uniform, they were executed. Whilst de Gondry had been threatened with it as a prisoner of war, in this particular instance, the commando order has been passed and the recapturing of Hayes actually led to his subsequent execution.
0: So I think we do need to take the threat here... That he would probably be shot, yeah, very seriously. In a way that ordinarily, I think it was usually used as just a threat to try and get some information out of a prisoner of war upon capture when they're already a bit disorientated here I think we should take it very seriously and I certainly get the impression that the granger did as well yeah because within a couple of days he was making an attempt to escape yeah absolutely right so to his escape he states my wound had now healed though my dressing had only been changed twice since my capture there was a guard in the corridor outside my room and another below the window which was not barred I noticed that about midnight the guard outside was in the habit of walking away from his post to relieve himself he was usually absent for about five minutes and no one was in the habit of coming into my room between midnight and 0, 0600 hours that's a really interesting description of him scouting out an escape opportunity because he has been wounded quite seriously, bayonet to the calf I can't imagine is a, a minor scratch. No, no a quick healer. Yeah. no, and of course he's been in solitary and not fed particularly well as well so it, the opportunity to scout it an escape would not have been particularly extensive but he's managing to find small windows of opportunity that he might be able to make an escape. So he then takes the straw strip mattresses from his room because there were two beds in there. Although he was in there by himself, there was two beds. So he mm-hmm. takes the mattresses there and makes a straw rope with the straw that that was stuffed inside the mattresses. He scattered some straw on the floor of the room to deaden his footfalls, so that if the guard outside was listening, he's a plan. Yeah, very yeah, smart. Good plan. Yeah. And then took the strips from the covering of the mattress and fashioned them into a sort of rope light cord that he could use and then about midnight on the night of the 24th of November 1942, when the guard outside had gone to relieve himself, he tied the straw rope round a radiator in the room and fixed a piece of cord to it. He then jumped out the window, which of course we said was not barred, Mm -hmm. and slid down this rope. By then pulling on the cord, he brought the rope down after him and threw it clear of the building. So he's then removed evidence of his escape, thus giving him better opportunity to get away.
1: And we've seen the results of not doing that with the the Vatican escape, yes, which we did in series three, where they unfortunately had to leave the rope hanging. So Mm -hmm. obviously the moment a guard comes back, it's obvious that something's happened. By this, it's great. He's managed to hide the fact he's gone.
0: Exactly. Now, in their case, they were only travelling about three kilometres through central Rome. But nonetheless, it makes a huge difference if you can remove the evidence, because he's then bought himself effectively six hours, because the room isn't going to be inspected for another six hours till six in the morning. Yeah. He was wearing battle dress with a pair of felt shoes, and he had with him a stud compass. Now, that's, again, MI9 provided. Mm. And he's clearly managed to get that through all the searches. I mean, you know, we said earlier about how they were ripping open his shirt and the cuffs to try and find identity discs, but they didn't think to look at the buttons. Yeah. And so he's managed to get that through, and that clearly is going to be extremely useful. And he'd also managed to save some bread from his prison ration. Now, we've already discussed about how little food he's getting, so in order to have saved bread, yeah. it says a lot for his... Levels of energy. Levels and- of energy, but also his mental strength to resist the temptation. To eat it, yeah. He says, I also had some idea of the direction I needed to take because I'd noticed carefully the position of the sun at sunrise and sunset. And so he walked out of Wilhelmshaven, walking west into open country. That's very, very smart.
1: That's very naval as well, I'm sure. Yes. It's part of your your navigation. I mean, he'd served 13 years in the Navy. Yes, he had. It would make sense that he would scout out which direction he's going to...
0: It would, but it shows a clear mindset to anticipate the potential need for locating himself and the direction of travel that he'd need to take. Because, of course, if you're on the coast, as of course it being a harbour, it was, Hmm. you've only got three directions of travel, not four. Correct. And so he needed to make sure he was properly orientated because the last thing you want to do is take the wrong direction and end up in a heavily guarded harbour having just escaped from the Gestapo. Probably would not have ended well for him. No. So that again it's the mindset, it's the preparation, it's the thinking ahead that he's showing even under extreme circumstances that is really coming out in this report for me. Now the reason why I said that a compass would be so useful is because he then immediately takes to foot. Now he says for the next stage of my journey so the next couple of days I walked only at night and never upon road so he's going cross country here
1: mm-hmm. which we have, just, se- we have seen that before. we have seen
0: that before but that makes a compass all the more necessary because you're not following routes that already exist you're having to find it for yourself and indeed he even resolved to avoid all villages and only to approach farms when absolutely necessary so a couple of days later in the morning of the 27th of November he came to a farm in the Netherlands somewhere east of Groningen actually he's making quite good progress here mm. Willem mm, traveling col- to uh, Groningen is about 120 kilometers. Mm. Now, he does say it's east of Groningen, and therefore he hasn't it, quite yeah. made it the full 120 kilometers. Yeah. Well, he's reached the Netherlands, so he's clearly gone a fair distance. So he's making very good progress at this stage, which, again, in the context of the injury, the lack of food, the access to food, but also the lack of recovery due to the lack of food. Mm-hmm makes it actually very impressive the rate that he's going at. Now this Dutch farmer spoke very little French but he did offer him some food and shelter and also gave him some civilian clothes all of which are extremely helpful, of course. Now, he did ask for directions to Utrecht, but de Grange says that he was afraid that he might betray me and so I continued on my way but avoided Utrecht. After a time, I came to a large river, which I think was the River Rhine, and here I found a small boat tied up to the bank by a cord. I loosened the cord,
1: crossed the river and tied the boat up again on the other side. Calling nice. That's diligent. yeah, 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 very kind. Yeah but then i suppose a boat adrift would also attract attention if you just left it so yes you want to minimize the the idea that there's somebody up to something in the area yeah exactly
0: he also managed to get some food at a couple of local farms and of course he's now in the netherlands so he is in much friendlier territory and so the the possibility of getting food from these farms would have been greatly increased having left germany So continuing on, he eventually reached Belgium, and there a farmer offered to lend him a bicycle. Lend
1: a bicycle. Lend a
0: bicycle. I mean, I don't know when he planned to get it back. At least
1: it wasn't stolen. I was going to say, we've encountered an awful lot of bicycle theft in the last... Well, actually, for all of the series, we have a a high rate of bicycle theft, because of course it's a a wonderful way of travelling large distances. But he he was offered a loan of a bicycle. Yes. Okay.
0: But he turned it down, thinking it'd be unsafe to attempt to travel on the roads and therefore continue walking across country. Now you're right. We have seen a lot of bicycle theft over the last couple of series, but equally, it has been one of the surest routes of escape. It has. It's been a very successful way of travelling, relatively unnoticed.
1: But I suppose we're in a situation where he has no papers. So True. again, cycling on the roads, he's he's managed to get a long way. He's he gone has. from Willemschaven to Belgium, we Belgium? Yeah. yeah. On foot. So not knowing yet his intended point of leaving continental Europe, he's done well. He has just yeah. going on foot. So I could see I could see his argument in, in not taking it, but it's unusual to turn down that, that method of transport. Yes, speech.
0: especially when being given so freely. Hmm. It negated the necessity of thievery. So eventually he reached Brussels on foot, and in actual fact he's walked about four hundred plus kilometres in a couple of weeks
1: on limited rations
0: exactly Yes. he really has done extremely well so having reached brussels he then boards a good train and travels for a couple of hours among some empty crates which sounds relatively comfortable after weeks of walking
1: absolutely and but also a highly efficient way of moving long distances although liable obviously to searching
0: yeah and this train actually takes him into france which of course is where he's from having reached france's home country then gets off the train and begins walking again not far from where he had stopped, he comes across a house where some helpers gave him some bread tickets and 250 francs. Useful. Very useful, because with this money, he then buys a ticket to take him to Paris, where he arrived on the 14th of December. So we're now talking about three, four weeks after yeah. his escape. So just shy of a month after his initial escape and three months after his initial capture. Hmm. And having arrived in Paris, he then goes to the house of a relative nearby and he stays there until the 6th of March. So he's staying another... Three months. Three months, yeah, exactly. But this seems to be in quite a productive period because his relative gave him money and bought a forged identity card in the name of Jean Fournier. So the black market would seem to be alive and well in 1943 occupied Paris. So clearly there is a big advantage of being back in the home country and among family. And I wanted to pick up on that because obviously we look predominantly at British-commonwealth Stroke escapers. We do. We haven't touched too much upon servicemen from allied nations such as Poland, France, etc. We've looked at it a little bit but not gone into too much detail. But it is clear that there is an advantage of being from an occupied country if escaping because, of course, you're naturalised from that nation.
1: You act... Like you're from that nation, we've we've seen before. With uh... makes
0: a huge difference, and and of course Helen touches upon that very point about actually looking like you're from the country,
1: yeah, even down to walking exactly, walking in a way,
0: or wearing clothes from that country, you know, shoes or what have you that are clearly suitable for the area. So, having got himself some more money and an identity card and so on and so forth, he resolves to find some help to get him into Spain, and he found such help in Paris itself. So, acting upon the advice of his helpers, he leaves. Paris on the 7th of March for Bayon where he arrived the next day by train and he says that there was no control on this train now that is a relatively important detail because having arrived there he was then informed that if he had gone any further there would have been a German control on the train for which identity cards for the Pyrenees would have been necessary he had no such card mm-hmm. to have gone further so it was quite important that he had reached this stage without being checked Yeah. nonetheless he still continued on on the train and he says when I saw the German control board the train, I asked the Frenchman in the corridor to warn me by tapping on the window when he saw them approaching my compartment. I then got out of the train, which was in motion and clung to the side until the control had passed. And then later got back into the train. So he has quite literally avoided inspection by the German patrol by clinging to the side of
1: a moving train. That's brilliant. It's fantastic, isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. But it would make sense if they looked into the cabin and there's nobody in there, yeah. then move on.
0: Yeah. He then gets off the train at Le Ban and stayed in the hotel there. So again, the significance of having got himself some money, where he met two other Frenchmen who were trying to get into Spain. So while there, they got in touch with a Spanish guide to whom they gave 12,000 francs. And he states, of this sum, I contributed only 3,000 francs. Now, they're on the Bay of Biscay side, so the western side of the Pyrenees. Yep. Because he then crosses the Franco-Spanish frontier with the guide on the 9th of March. So he's reached neutral Spain three and a half months after his escape and nearly six months after his initial capture. Yes. However, his adventures did not end there. No. Because not dissimilar to his, he was arrested in Spain. However, he wasn't handed back
1: Hmm. It's not unusual for someone to be arrested in a neutral country, however, because, of course, they have effectively arrived illegally. With no paperwork. With no paperwork. So it wouldn't be unusual. But what we have saw with Hayes, is what was unusual, was that he was then handed back to the Germans. Exactly.
0: And so he was arrested almost immediately. So he crossed on the evening of the 9th of March and was arrested at about 8 in the morning on the 10th of March with his two other French companions by the Spanish Civil Guards. Now, they asked them for his identity cards and they said that they were French civilians. And they were then taken to Pabamplona, which is in the Basque region okay. in, in northern Spain, where the famous bull run yes. is. Yes, yes. And they were kept in prison in Pamplona for a month until the 9th of April. Now, while in Pamplona, he tried to get in touch with the British authorities in Madrid and Bilbao by letter, but seemingly had no success. Now, again, that's quite interesting because, of course, British prisoners did get representation having been arrested and and imprisoned in Spain. They got representation either by the embassy in Madrid or by the consulate in the local area. Now, my initial reaction was to think, well, why didn't he just go to the French embassies? But of course, the French embassies represented either occupied France or Vichy. Of course. Neither of which he could go to. Mm. So he's turned to the British embassies, but he seems not to have had any success. And indeed, one of the letters that he wrote to the consul in Bilbao was intercepted by the commissioner of police, with the result that I was then transferred to prison in Bilbao. And then from there, he was taken to a prison in a place called Miranda, which is a bit of a notorious place. We've, we have we mentioned that before. Yeah, yeah. come across it. It's quite notorious for... Appalling conditions. Appalling conditions, but also high numbers and high levels of prisoners kept in it. And all of this was while he was under the assumed name of Jean Fournier. However, early in June, three months after his arrest, Fine. he was taken to Setabel in Portugal. Now it is unclear how or why he was moved and released. Because of course Portugal is also a neutral country but a completely separate country from Spain. So it's n- there's no reason given for this transfer. Hmm. And from there, on the 9th of June, he was taken to Casablanca in Morocco. Arriving in Casablanca four days later, so he must have been taken by ship. Yeah. And then on the 30th of June, he was taken by air to Algiers and on the 4th of July to gibraltar via fez leaving gibraltar to return to the uk on the 5th of july which is seven months after his initial escape and of Mm. course 10 months after his initial capture now i said that it's unclear how and why he was moved and released however i think given the fact that he went via gibraltar we do have to make perhaps some assumption that there was some british intervention here yeah it makes sense Yeah, So that is him back in the UK following his escape.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, as we've seen with a large number of other escapees, I could find nothing else of him. No records. So, you know, we have somebody in the fighting French Navy back in 1943, back in the UK. One would assume that he he carried on in the fight, but I could find nothing. I mean, obviously, I found a reasonable amount about the other people on his raid. And as Mm. we know, sadly, most of them got killed or those that were captured. I mean, obviously, he, he managed to escape and get back again. But, you know, a few of the others managed to stay as prisoners of war. But yeah, sadly, nothing comes up for Andre in the future. So if anybody out there does know what happened to him, I'd love to find out to put this story to bed. But unfortunately, that's where for us his story ends. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or
0: you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O.
1: Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.